have to understand that there's a enormous uh, cross uh, uh, relationship between the private sector and the public sector in this in this particular field. That's one of the things that makes it so hard. That's one of the things that made our work so complex and, and difficult to try to navigate the two areas of vulnerability. It's not just government. It's not just the private sector. There's got to be uh, there's got to be a close information sharing and coordination of response. Episode 311 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us for Lawyers Talking Technology, Security, Privacy, and Government. And the views we're going to express here today do not reflect those of uh, uh, our institutions, our clients, our uh, pets, our uh, uh, spouses, uh, anybody who is sharing our lockdown space with us. Uh, um, there's no I need for them to for vocally. My teddy bear. <laughs> you speak for your teddy bear? Good. <laughs> uh, however, right, uh, there's no need for people who disagree to intervene with their views at this point because uh, we've already disclaimed them. Uh, uh, today, we're going to interview uh, Senator Angus King uh, and Dr. Samantha Ravitch, both of them uh, uh, the participants, uh, uh, Senator King as co-chairman in the uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which has written a very good report, uh, very thoughtful and full of actually doable, if quite ambitious, uh, recommendations uh, uh, on cybersecurity. Uh, but first, the news roundup. Uh, and joining me for that are Brian Egan, who's a partner in Steptoe's Washington office, formerly with the State Department. Maury Schenk, who's an advisor to Steptoe on European tech issues, calling in from London. Uh, Nick Weaver, uh, uh, coming from uh, uh, the computer science uh, uh, arm of UC Berkeley. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, why don't we jump into it? Something that Nick and uh, Maury and I have actually already been debating uh, considerably by email, which is uh, the Google slash Apple uh, uh design for doing infection tracking uh, of uh, COVID-19 uh, on mobile phones. We've talked about this before. It's, a, it's an obvious way to bring uh, a, a longstanding public health measure, which is asking people, who else have you had contact with? And then finding those people and telling them to get treated and tested and treated to, so that you can wipe out uh, 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 networks of infection, uh, moving that to the 21st century by putting it on mobile phones and having the mobile phones keep track of where you go and or who you're in contact with. Uh, um, uh, Nick, uh, uh, that's the problem that Google and Apple were addressing. And since they make the operating systems for 98% of our uh, phones, um, this looked like it was a potential game changer in terms of getting COVID-19 infection tracking actually out into the wild where it, uh, it needs to be in order to do tracking. Um, what did you think of what uh, they did? And uh, uh, then I'll give you my view. Um, I think it's a very nice protocol because it shows that you do not need to sacrifice privacy very much to get good contact tracing. 
I think we're actually in strong agreement that it should probably be an opt-in rather than an opt-out for the underlying tracking. But the design is such that you do not have to tell Apple or Google anything. And that when there is a contact tracing app, it is only that app that tells you, hey, if you were potentially exposed, you're potentially exposed. Um, and I won't get into the crypto, but the crypto is clever. It basically means that even if you had global surveillance of people's Bluetooth devices, you could only track somebody who was reported as positive and only for two weeks. Um, but the other thing is, is Apple and Google pretty much had to do this. And the reason why is because phones are pretty locked down against stuff like this because advertisers abuse it. And so what they had to do, or they have to do, is open up a limited window that will allow contact tracing apps to work. And in our email correspondence, I think we're actually in fairly strong agreement overall that it needs to be opt, opt out rather than opt in. So I, I, I think, yes, we, we, we are closer together than I had originally thought, uh, but I do agree with you that uh, uh, this is something that um, uh, Google and Apple had to do or there would have been a terrible uh, uh, backlash. Singapore's system, which is very clever and pretty privacy protective, uh, um, only got about uh, less than 20% uh, uh, market share because apparently you had to leave your phone on and unlocked, which means you know, you're constantly unlocking it, which isn't likely. Um, so it was never going to really work unless Google and Apple made some special accommodations. And then they had to decide, well, what are we making accommodations for? And they came up with what I guess I now think of as a reference design for what they're allowing uh, to go through. Uh, my problem with the reference design is it really tries uh, and fails to imagine a, a system in which the health authorities don't actually know who uh, is uh, uh, notifying uh, uh, the world of their infection. Uh, a, and in an effort to avoid central administration, They've made the whole notification process more complicated and less likely to work. Um, but I do agree with you uh, uh, that uh, they, they also actually uh, do not imagine that this will be an opt-out system. They imagine uh, people having to opt in to both the tracking and then to the notification. And lots of people just aren't going to do it. And this only works if you've got 80% or more of the people actually using it. Uh, uh, and so I think uh, governments should welcome this probably, but they're going to have to write and uh, bless their own particular app. And they're probably going to not want to follow Google and Apple's uh, uh, defaults on how the app should work. Right. But they can do that easily. That's right. I, I think that's right. I, uh, you know, the idea that everything should happen out at the edge as opposed to in the center, which is part of what they're doing, creates these problems. Like uh, uh, they put all the notification out on the um, phone 
And then if somebody dies, which unfortunately is all too common, uh, just dies suddenly of uh, COVID-19, um, you can't unlock their phone. The Apple has, has made absolutely sure of that. And you can't get the data anyplace else about where actually, this person has been. Actually, they could put the master keys in the readable at boot storage so that even a locked phone, you can recover that information. And I bet they would. That would be good. Thought yeah. of that. That, 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 I, I think there's a lot they haven't thought about. There's no discussion of being able to upload your information so that you can recover it if your phone goes missing or breaks, uh, which you ought to be able to do. Uh, and it probably ought to be the default. Uh, uh, so yeah. a lot of the stuff a lot of the dumb things that they've done, they could fix uh, in the uh, uh, in, in the second beta version. Also, it's for those it just works that the phone already has a notion of this is backed up storage, and you just flag it as backed up readable on boot, and that solves those issues. So this means that uh, the United States is going to have to develop an app, uh, and and we've got like six different uh, uh, groups trying to develop apps, uh, and I think there's an effort in the federal government, but it's pretty subterranean at this point. Uh, uh, there's a story that said that uh, uh, the president's son-in-law is trying to get a system put together. Uh, but we're going to have to have it, and it's going to have to be done really soon, because it'll be an important part of reassuring people as we start to reopen the economy. Don't worry, we'll have it in California soon. Yes, I, I, well, that would be good, because uh, we're going to need it there. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, meanwhile, life goes on, and and uh, the, the, the part of life that goes on endlessly is decoupling from China, uh, and it really couldn't happen to a nicer country. Maury, uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, Team Telecom has announced, actually, when I, when I start out with Team Telecom getting a new charter and a new acronym, uh, uh, Brian, uh, uh, tell us about what Team Telecom is and um, uh, why it suddenly got a charter. So Team Telecom is a uh, informal group of U.S. agencies that has existed for a couple of decades at least to advise the Federal Communications Commission on license applications that have potential law enforcement or national security concerns. This group has been informal for many years. Uh, that's been in part because the FCC has wanted it that way to some extent. The FCC is a semi-autonomous federal agency. Um, but recently, uh, both the FCC and the executive branch have pushed for a more formal structure. Uh, this was true in the last administration, actually in 2016, the FCC published draft rules that would formalize the structure. And then last week, President Trump issued an executive order creating a much more formal team telecom process under the unfortunate acronym of CAFPUTSUS. Uh, the the process, though, would still it, it would resemble the old process. The Justice Department would be formally in charge now for the first time. They would review license applications that are referred by the FCC. They would also have authority to weigh in on existing license applications that they believe present national security or law enforcement concerns. And there's a time frame associated with the review that has been one of the criticisms that the FCC has leveled on Team Telecom in the past that license applications that go to Team Telecom just can sit there forever 
now there is a time frame built into President Trump's executive order that is designed to make that not happen. And, and my prediction is within three years, we will see legislation that basically takes that uh, executive order and turns it into law because uh, um, you, you, you usually can't go wrong just uh, instantiating existing practice into uh, into law. And so uh, somebody's going to do that. Uh, uh, and probably just as well, I, my view has been that Team Telecom worked pretty well and that we really ought to have a team uh, 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 cybersecurity for the FTC as they acquire more and more authority over what amounts to the security of our uh, uh, digital infrastructure. Uh, and Team Telecom celebrated its uh, its new charter uh, by blackballing China Telecom. Maury, what happened? Well, they've they've recommended um, that the FCC revoke the International Section Two Fourteen authorization of China Telecom, which allows them to carry um, international communications to and from the United States, similar to the FCC not agreeing to grant uh, a to Section 214 uh, um, authorization to China Mobile last year. The reasons are fairly generic. Um, cybersecurity concerns about the customers of China Telecom, some instances of misrouting of internet traffic, some of which appear to be inadvertent, some of which may not be. The big question I have is, you know, what does the world look like if there is a tit-for-tat refusal of allowing international carriers to do this based upon security concerns. We know that U.S. carriers do the same kind of thing from Edward Snowden, and uh, and it's continuing. Everybody does it. And so it seems to me, although this is somewhat a bipartisan thing, but both Chuck Schumer and Tom Cotton have called for review of this, isn't the solution to allow commerce to go on but to develop protocols that are secure if you don't trust the network. You know, in theory, you could do that, but it's not just about protecting the confidentiality of the communications. You want the communications to go through. And if you don't trust the guy who's delivering the the, the messages, then you just can't have them in the network. Yeah, I mean, it depends what their role is in the network. I don't think that anybody would say that China Telecom is instrumental to the U.S. communications network. And from a cybersecurity perspective, it's primarily their customers who are the ones who have to worry about them. Um, some of these traffic routing incidents could have broader implications, but it's it's fairly limited. Yeah, but you asked, you know, what would the world look like if everybody did this? It would look like China. I mean, AT&T is not exactly offering uh, telecommunications services inside China. No, that is true. I mean, we could have... Um, we may have a fully, I mean, China is balkanized. We deal with lots of clients who have to, uh, you know, deal with the effects of the Great Firewall and maybe, and lots of clients who worry about data localization in more places. Maybe that's the way we're going. The John Perry Barlow vision of the internet is is dead. Yes, it is. And so is John Perry Barlow, unfortunately. I, uh, yes, I think that's uh, that's exactly right. Uh, that's, that is where we're going. It's going to be a balkanized world. It was a balkanized world before the internet. And, you know, there were a bunch of internet hippies that uh, thought that they could change that. And it's increasingly looking as though they can't. Um, I, I want to turn to uh, this sort of remarkable change in the reputation of uh, uh, 
Silicon Valley uh, and how it's affecting uh, judicial decision making. Because there's a case that now it's just the Ninth Circuit decided that I think um, would have been unthinkable as an outcome 10 years ago. Uh, the question was, uh, has Facebook been wiretapping all of the people who go to websites that have little um, uh, Facebook-like icons on them, uh, where you can click that to like uh, the page on uh, Facebook. Uh, it turns out that what those icons do, among other things, is guarantee that everybody who comes there has the request that they've uh, submitted to the internet to go there uh, copied to Facebook. And um, Facebook was sued for privacy violations uh, and, among other things, actually wiretapping. Uh, uh, Nick, I, how, do, how does that add up to wiretapping? This is actually something that I'm surprised hasn't come up. Well, it has. It's In fact, uh, if you read the decision, subject of a circuit split. So the question is, when you go to a web page and it has on, say, herpes, and it has a like button on it, Facebook knows not just if you like herpes, but that you're reading about it. Yeah, you don't have to like, you don't have to use yes. the button for. Uh, basically, what they're doing is they're saying we'll give you the website this advantage in that you'll be uh, uh, more widely viewed on Facebook, and in return, you agree that everybody who comes to your page will have their um, uh, path to arriving at that page copied yes. to us, as well as a identifying cookie that is a sent even when you are logged out of Facebook. So Facebook was using this to be able to create shadow profiles on users who aren't logged in. But you know, that isn't isn't that a little bit of a of a red herring? Of course you're not logged in. You don't have to be logged in. This is information that is collected from this other site. So uh, uh, to say, well, I was logged out, they shouldn't have this information. It's like saying I was logged out of Google. I wasn't doing a Google search and they still collected my information because Google Analytics was running on the page. Uh, there are a lot of, of uh, people who followed this model and who are collecting information. It, it, it this is this is a way of, of attacking Facebook by playing on people's assumption that if they're not logged in, uh, Google, Facebook doesn't know anything they're doing. Uh, but I just don't, you know, uh, I don't think that Facebook is really any different from Google in this regard. Right. And this is why there's a circuit split is a couple of circuits who've gotten to the question have answered differently. Uh, I would actually answer that Yes, it is wiretapping, but under federal law, it's one-party consent, and the website has consented. So it's wiretapping, but party consent comes into it, and that is something that didn't seem to be really addressed in this decision. I think they were they were they left that issue for later. It was not part of the uh, motion to dismiss. Uh, although they could have reached the same result by saying no. When, they specifically when, said in the decision that they were looking at the uh, the consent issue exception and didn't conclude on that. That's okay. So they sent that back to uh, to be decided. Yeah, I. I they could just as easily have said, since you send this to the third-party site, uh, um, you, you, you send your request to download the site's uh, information, which everybody has to, and then 
it that information becomes the property of the site you sent it to. And if they want to copy it to somebody else, it's no skin off your nose. Uh, uh, that's the argument they rejected. And I agree with you. This is a circuit split that is going to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I still think it's remarkable that um, courts are willing to contemplate the massive liability that comes with wiretapping uh, uh, charges um, against people who are basically you know, doing what it takes to, to have advertising programs that, uh, that work on the internet, uh, um, instead of saying, uh, this is how our internet works and we love it. So we're not going to, uh, hold people liable. This is a change in, you know, the posture of Silicon Valley. Yeah. But they, they specifically say the party exception must be considered in the technical context. And so they did an analysis of the first party exception and they came to what I think is the wrong conclusion. Yeah, that that's crazy. I um, all right. I uh, so there it is. Uh, that's my recommendation to the Supreme Court. You should. Uh, this is cert worthy because it's crazy. Um, Maury, uh, uh, remarkably, here we are in the middle of a lockdown, coronavirus, massive death toll, uh, and the European Union is saying, I know what we ought to be doing. We ought to be regulating artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, what's going on? Well, they're just continuing the process. There was a white paper issued in February on AI regulation um, with the uh, you know, supposedly it's typical European regulation. It's what they do in Brussels. And I think a lot of the COVID-19 response is happening in the member states. So the Brussels regulators still need stuff to do. And Margrethe Vestager, who's been the competition commissioner and is now the executive VP of the European uh, Commission for Europe Fit for a Digital Age, says that this will continue. It's even more important than ever. Um, it's this, you know, as a tech person, it's really painful to watch in uh, Europe keep doing this to itself, over-regulating in areas like data protection, network and security, where they have their hearts in the right place, but it, it always goes a little bit too far and makes uh, it just unattractive for industry. And, you know, one thinks to, starts to think Europe fit for a digital age is kind of Europe Disneyland. Well, it's a nice place to visit. It's really safe, but it won't be great for the tech industry. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. It's uh, um, they they're still shooting at Silicon Valley and hitting their own feet. Uh, uh, speaking of which, uh, this is a a regulation that I just I love. Um, we all remember that uh, Google was told they had to pay the Spanish media for using their snippets, uh, their news snippets. And so uh, uh, Google said, yeah, fine, we, we're not going to pay them. We just won't use them. Uh, and the Spanish media had to come crawling back and say, please, please take it. We need the money. Uh, now, some French regulators have said, uh, well, you have to pay uh, when you use French media and you're not allowed to stop carrying it. Uh, uh, Nick, is the, uh, am I reading this right? Yep. So it was basically the Spanish shot themselves in the foot. And so when France tried the same thing, they ended up going, hey, we're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot. Uh, Google, you're still going to have to do this. So Google is being compelled to run Google News in France with payment to be decided later after negotiation. Um Remind me not to do business in France. 
Yeah, this is going to be this is going to be ugly, I think, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, the French regulators are also going to have to specify all the rules for which news media get uh, uh, first place and second place. Uh, They're going to have to essentially run the entire news search business for Google before they're done. Uh, And I'm just not sure they can do that. Uh, uh, or, or they just can say, how about a billion dollar fine unless you do something we like, and then Google will have to go figure out what they like and, and do it themselves. All right. I, and Maury, I, <laughs> tell me, you're, you're in, the, in the UK. Why are they burning down 5G uh, 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 telecom masts, uh, wireless masts. Uh, I, uh, this is the the most bizarre conspiracy theory I've heard yet in the last uh, six months. Anyway, it seems to be a global theory. Um, I'm not sure why it has burst out in the UK in terms of attack on wireless masts. It started with a random article in Belgium in January that basically was against 5G didn't really draw a connection to coronavirus, but said something about current events. And it's since been amplified by lots of people, including John Cusack, among other people. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's a mark of quality right there. <laughs> but it's kind of gone global. And people, I, I think it's a mix of fear of 5G. You know, um, right. there isn't a lot of evidence that it's dangerous, but it's uncertain and it's a lot of new radiation and rampant fear of coronavirus. Well, properly so. That's that's worth fearing. But the idea that you can get it from wireless transmissions is pretty bizarre. These are bizarre times. And I think it's just fear swirling around in unpredictable ways. The other thing that I think has happened is our communication media's make uh, these viral paranoias like QAnon, Pizzagate, this, spread a lot faster. I remember 20 years ago, the chemtrails wackos were just putting occasional signs on, um, on lampposts, but now they can all find each other, and that amplifies the crazy. Yeah, uh, uh, uh... Quite possibly. Why is Russia today such a proponent of this theory, Maury? Uh, uh, the, is it that the Russians don't want to see 5G deployed? Is it uh, so much more secure that they can't easily wiretap it? I, I don't have a good answer to that, except that the Russians have been running an incredible... I mean, the Russians, we know are good at disinformation, and they've used it for destabilization all around the world. Maybe this is some part of that, but I don't have a better answer than that. Bizarre. All right. Um, Nick, uh, the FTC uh, tapped out Taplock. Uh, uh, how come? Because they are bloody idiots mismarketing and mismanaging a truly crappy lock combined with uh, website practices that were pretty bad. Um it's an amusing failure, and so it, was supposed, supposed, it was supposed to be a it was supposed to be a smart lock, right? Uh, and it, uh, they charged a hell of a lot of money for it. Uh, uh, but it, it does sound like they did not do even the most basic security review. Yeah, that you hand one to the lock picking lawyer, he moves the back off, flink, and it opens. So it was a secure <laughs> that was smart that was the lock, best part. Only as long as you go to the front. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was. It's it's proof against all kinds of electronic interference and uh, elaborate uh, uh, efforts to break it, but not proof against screwdrivers. Uh, uh, yeah. So the FTC basically said, okay, that we just this is like shooting fish in a barrel. And they called them up and said, we have a uh, uh, consent decree for you to sign. And Taplock, the minute their lawyer actually uh, uh, saw what they had said and what the FTC was saying, just said, sign it. It's the best deal you're going to get in the next 10 years. Uh, it, uh, so um, I'm not sure it tells us much other than that the FTC will move on people whose uh, misrepresentations or security are so bad that they're just unignorable. All right, three or four quickies. Uh, um, Maury, uh, the U.S. and U.K. cybersecurity authorities got together and did a joint uh, um, cyber threat update uh, uh, on COVID-19 scams of various sorts. What does this mean uh, uh, for the relationship, for future uh, uh, cybersecurity uh, cooperation? Yeah, I mean, it's not huge news, but it's the National Cybersecurity Center here in the UK and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency in, in the US, um, security agency. It's, you know, it. The, the COVID-19 scams are nothing new. They're just using COVID-19 in the World Health Organization for usual phishing, spear phishing, et cetera. Um, but it's, uh, it's nice to see the U.S. and U.K. cooperating on this. I think it's evidence of the special relationship. And if you read it, it's a nice document. I mean, it's a good refresher of the ways people can, uh, can trick you using communications. It, w- it would be a nice addition to your typical corporate training program on this. Yep. Uh, so I thought this was interesting. The uh, The Australian government said, uh, also in response to some of this COVID, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, hacking exploitation, that they were actually going in and disrupting efforts by criminals to send out uh, scams, to uh, uh, scan ports, to uh, engage in a variety of uh, attacks during the coronavirus lockdown. Uh, and I don't know about you, uh, uh, but uh, now that I think I understand um, the uh, defend forward philosophy that the uh, uh, Cyber Command is using, I wonder if the Australian government hasn't taken defend forward uh, to the point of criminal enforcement, where they're basically saying, we know who these crooks are, and instead of trying to put them in jail, why don't we just screw them up when they try to execute? Uh, uh, It's an interesting um, application of what amounts to a military doctrine in a criminal context. Let me do a quick shout out to Jonathan Schneider, um, uh, who has written a, a fun article uh, in uh, the Richmond Journal of Law and Technology called Alexa, Are You a Foreign Agent? And he talks about the many ways in which compromising uh, our home voice appliances could allow foreign governments to recruit uh, uh, agents inside the United States uh, uh, intelligence community, uh, and it's you know there's some fairly fairly realistic uh, worries aired there. So if you're looking for uh, a counterintelligence that focuses on you know Alexa or uh, as we may have to start calling her Natasha, uh, uh, this is a this is a good basic read. All right. Um, Let's move on to our interview. Beginning our 
interview with uh, uh, Senator uh, Angus King, who's a an independent from Maine, former two-term governor governor of Maine, and uh, on both the Intelligence and the uh, Armed Services Committee. Uh, he was the co-chair of the Cyber Solarium uh, Commission, uh, which was set up to come up with a strategy for cyber conflict uh, a, a, in the mold of the Solarium group that advised Eisenhower on how to come up with a strategy for the nuclear age back in the 50s. I, uh, with him is uh, Dr. Samantha Ravitch, a longtime defense intellectual, served in the Bush administration as deputy uh, uh, national security advisor to the vice president. Uh, she's the chairman of uh, FDD Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, uh, uh, Senior Advisor to uh, uh, FDD, uh, and uh, uh, has been uh, Vice Chair of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board uh, uh, for several years now. Uh, uh, so uh, welcome, Senator King. Welcome, uh, Dr. Evich. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. All right. So uh, this is a this is a good report. It's a, a, as I said at the uh, outset, it is um, a set of ambitious, but maybe not too ambitious uh, uh, goals. And it has a coherence and uh, almost always says sensible things. I don't agree with everything in it, but uh, it says a lot of sensible things about the state of conflict between uh, uh, the U.S. and other cyber powers. Uh, um, what I would like to talk about today mainly is uh, the recommendations. You've got so many, I don't, I don't think we can cover them all. I want to talk about the recommendations that affect the private sector. And some of them are going to be pretty controversial. So the question that I'd like to start out with uh, uh, is uh, uh, why is someone from the private sector who thinks that some of your recommendations are going to cost them a fair amount of money should be willing to accept new regulatory burdens or other uh, liabilities? Uh, um, what's the overall situation with respect to our cyber vulnerability that justifies the kinds of pretty aggressive steps that the commission has recommended. Well, from, from my, this, this is Angus King. From my point of view, the, the short answer is because they're sitting ducks and something like 80% of the cyber infrastructure that's at risk is in the private sector. And if we didn't know that before, we know it now because of the, the virus and the enormous explosion of people working from home, it's presented a whole new uh, target vector for uh, malicious cyber actors. In fact, a intelligence piece just came out today from uh, Homeland Security pointing up the fact that uh, malicious actors are, are in fact targeting the various work from home technologies to uh, find ways, new ways to get into uh, private sector uh, uh, systems uh, and networks. So, uh, you know, again, the short answer is because they're very vulnerable and at risk uh, to lose uh, millions and billions of dollars in intellectual property, uh, to lose uh, any kind of uh, competitive advantage, uh, to open their uh, staff members and personnel up to uh, personal uh, losses. So, uh, uh, 
the risk is significant and growing. And uh, I think I, I just I, I think not taking the kind of precautions that we're recommending uh, will ensure greater losses down the road. That's that's uh, that's where I'm coming from on this. Yeah, and I, I agree, and, and I would add, Stuart, that maybe the um, the only thing that uh, is better than the, the cost that, that the private sector may have to bear from some of these recommendations is the uncertainty, um, is, is removing some of that uncertainty, right? The uncertainty of what they may have to bear, whether it is because of an attack, which as, as uh, Senator King said, our recommendations are um, helping to harden and to increase resiliency, but also kind of um, unpacking right now uh, what, what does liability protection entail or not entail? Um, what are general you know, uh, data protection or not? Right? There's so much uncertainty in the market, and that makes it really hard for companies to even price in um, what they would need to do uh, going forward. So, yes, yeah. maybe increases in expenses, but on the other hand, they may be less because you can price them in and actually understand how to take the necessary precautions to make your business much more secure and robust. So let's start talking about uh, some of these recommendations. Uh, one of them that I, I stopped me when I first read it because uh, I just did not expect to, to see that from a Washington report uh, in uh, uh, 2020 was uh, creating liability uh, for unpatched vulnerabilities uh, uh, on the part of basically whoever assembles the final Internet of Things product uh, uh, or digitally enabled product. Uh, um that's uh, that's got to be the biggest expansion of liability law by uh, Congress if it's adopted uh, in the last 25 years. Uh, what was your thinking about doing that? You know, one of the great things about this commission was how many outsiders, first of all, the, the composition of the commission, right? Um, it's important for your listeners to know, four sitting members of, of Congress, obviously, Senator King, Senator Sass. Um, uh, Representative Langevin, Representative Gallagher, six outsiders of whom I'm one, people like Tom Fanning, CEO of Southern Company, 9 million um, customers, uh, one of the larger utilities, uh, people from the executive branch, but all of the conversations that we had with outside experts, representatives of consumer groups, obviously um, companies, and, and, and just our own personal experience. So on this liability for the final goods assemblers, you know, when, when we as commissioners, you know, we're just regular people too, heard that 50% of vulnerabilities remain without a patch for almost 450 days, right? And as the consumer, we have no idea where those vulnerabilities are. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of helpless. We You know, we talk a lot, you know, in terms of, well, the individual has to assume some you know, some responsibility um, in, in hardening our infrastructure for our entire nation. And how, how are we supposed to do that? Um, and so, you know, as we looked at the various recommendations that were proposed, and again, working very closely with the tech companies as we crafted this language with the consumer group, um, with average individuals, um, we, we realized that the developer, you know, of the software, um, to create a fix 
for their vulnerability and distribute it is really the only way in, in pieces of this that we're going to get the resiliency, you know, that we're calling for. And, and let me just add, again, COVID has just made our report, unfortunately, pre, you know, even more prescient than we, we thought it was, right? When, when you have uh, technologies such as Zoom, right, up, up 100% week on week in, in use. Um, uh, 200 million daily users of Zoom, things like this, with the vulnerabilities existing. Let me add to that, uh, Samantha. We have we're working on actually an annex to the report right now. Uh, hopefully, it'll be ready in several weeks about the COVID uh, risk that this has demonstrated to to try to put a fine point on it. But let me let me go back to your basic question. I don't think anybody would be saying anything about how awful it was that we were expanding liability if people that made lamps uh, didn't have liability if it blows up and burns your house down, or a TV, or or any other appliance. Uh, you, you have liability for those things, particularly if you know, let's say somebody makes a TV, knows that there's a 22% likelihood it will blow up and burn the house down and you sell it anyway and say, well, gee, I, that's not my responsibility. This is simply the same kind of risk, and it's and we're talking about known vulnerabilities, not unknown vulnerabilities, and we're talking about an opportunity to patch and, and repair, but we're saying that a, that a original manufacturer who puts a product into the commerce stream uh, that, that they know has a, has a danger of cyber vulnerability and they don't patch it then they have some responsibility for that. And I don't think there's anything radical about that notion. It's exactly the same principle as liability for any other dangerous product. It's just demonstrating. I mean, it's, it's recognizing that this is a, uh, a dangerous uh, possibility. And it's particularly important as we move into the Internet of Things, when your microwave or your refrigerator or, or your automobile uh, to the network and you have you don't patch a vulnerability uh, and it causes uh, death or, or, or property damage uh, I don't think it's radical at all I think it's common sense so I it, it, it does make sense it's kind of an end to Silicon Valley exceptionalism in, in, in one regard but let me ask you senator uh, uh, as uh, dr. Ravish said um, this was an unusual commission in which a lot of sitting uh, legislators were uh, participants, uh, uh, and that means they have to defend this when they are up for re-election. Uh, what are the prospects for actually getting this legislation through Congress? Uh, we're running out of time this year, I think, um, uh, but uh, well, uh, what's your sense of the, the prospects? Well, we were scheduled for half a dozen hearings uh, uh, in late March, all of which got canceled or postponed because of the, the virus and the fact that Congress is in an involuntary recess right now. So that makes it hard to, uh, to predict, although I've had conversations with uh, the leadership of uh, the various committees uh, that are, uh, have important jurisdiction here. Uh, Armed Services, Intelligence, Homeland Security, as well as uh, uh, Senate leadership, and we're we're hopeful that we're going to be able to to uh, uh, 
uh, get a lot of this done. A significant part of it can be done in the National Defense Authorization Act, which uh, I am quite sure we will get to sooner or later. Uh, usually, the, the, all the hearings are done in March and April. The markup is in May, and then we pass the bill later in the year. Uh, obviously, that's going to slip this year. But um, you know, it, you could go broke betting on the on what Congress will or won't get done. Uh, well, you, you, you almost never go broke. <laughs> you almost never go broke betting on what they won't do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There, there's a, but, but I think you know we're still going to be working at it, and you know we just don't know what the congressional schedule will be at this point, uh, and when we'll get back to work. But uh, we have a very aggressive uh, strategy for working with committees and committee leadership, uh, and talking about the various. Uh, recommendations that require legislation. Um, you know, <laughs> this is an urgent problem. I mean, the, 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 the coronavirus has sort of taken over the airwaves in terms of, of urgency, but uh, the danger of, the, of, of, of cyber, both in terms of, of the private sector and intellectual property theft and compromise of their networks, and the public sector in, in terms of threats to the country are, is, isn't going to go away. And in fact, has been, I would argue, somewhat aggravated by the, by the virus uh, threat that we're under right now. Do you think there's a case to be made for saying we're going to have a, a lessons learned bill, presumably coming out of the uh, COVID-19 uh, um, experience and maybe one pretty soon. Uh, um, do you think that to your recommendations fit into that, or is that uh, uh, working too hard to shoehorn them in? I don't think we should try to shoehorn them into a, a, a COVID-19 bill, but I do think something like the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a, uh, a bill that's passed, I think, every single year for the past 53 years or something like that, is very important. And, and the, uh, a, a good number of the recommendations fit naturally under that. It's not a shoehorning. Yes, I agree. Uh, and then there are other recommendations that will require other committee jurisdiction to to either handle the recommendations themselves or cede jurisdiction to another another committee. Probably the most difficult recommendation we have is the consolidation of the cyber responsibility into two new major committees uh, uh, analogous to the intelligence committees uh, that will involve some. A delegation of cyber jurisdiction from uh, a myriad of other committees. That's, you know, that's going to be tough. Getting Congress, getting members and committees to give up jurisdiction is is one of the hardest things you can do. But we felt it was appropriate to make that recommendation because the the cyber responsibility is so fragmented in Congress, uh, and it's so difficult to get anything done in that realm because of that fragmentation. We just felt as a co as a commission knowing it would be hard, that we had to make the re recommendation uh, and that uh, we're, we're going to have to push hard to try to make it happen. Well, so I, 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 I'm an alumnus of DHS and we have been waiting for almost 20 years for implementation of the 9-11 Commission's recommendation that there be uh, a oversight of DHS that uh, consolidates the committee system. And it still hasn't happened because so I'm well aware of how hard it is to uh, um, uh, streamline congressional jurisdiction. Um, let me let me come back to three notification uh, um, 
laws that you recommend, uh, and at least two of them have been around for a while. Uh, uh, all the states have uh, breach notification laws. California has also a privacy law, uh, a con a Consumer Privacy uh, Act, um, and DOD has a requirement that uh, contractors report cyber incidents, not that exposure of personal data, but just incidents that indicate a weakness in the network defenses of a particular company. Um, this bill, Samantha, I'll, I'll direct this one to you. This, this, this report recommends uh, laws on all of those at the federal level. Uh, I, I, did you see them as of a piece or are they really three separate uh, uh, proposals? Well, they, they certainly all build on one another, and, and at the heart of them, it is you know collecting data in a usable format, data that, that can be used. We also have, as a recommendation, a Bureau of Cyber Statistics, right, because we really need to define the threshold of what is a breach, because what you said, yes, there are states that have, you know, various types of data security and privacy protection, but they are just replete with these undefined terms, right? Undue delay, likelihood of high risk, you know. Um, and what we try to get at is to make these requirements um, both clearer, uh, more robust where need be, but also more usable because, yes, uh, DOD does have breach notification. Um, Frankly, they're not sure how many of those 10,000 new contractors, for instance, are actually giving the notification. And then once you start asking DOD, well, what are you doing with all the data that you have to understand how it can be used to know who the adversaries are and how to go after the adversaries and also how to make us more resilient, um, there's a lot of big holes in that. So it is making, again, more clear for the private sector as to what needs protected, um, how it's protected so that, that companies don't have to figure out the difference between a California Consumer Privacy and a New York Shield Act, um, as well as when it is collected, how is it used. And that is probably, you know, one of the bigger holes that we found in, in the government, which is the, 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 the data, even when it is collected, isn't being aggregated and then being used. Um, quickly to to plug holes and go after adversaries. So on breach notification, and I assume on cyber incident reporting, it's a federal statute and it occupies the field. The states uh, uh, don't get to uh, change the rules or write their own. Uh, but you 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 basically say that for uh, privacy. Uh, what the federal law ought to set is a minimum standard and uh, not preempt the states. Uh, what was the thinking there? My thinking is that uh, I'm a former governor and uh, have this residual uh, feeling about the state's rights and, and the important role that the federal government can play in setting minimum standards, but not necessarily in, in uh uh, restricting the states from setting higher standards. The, the balancing act that we're trying to achieve is between preemption and the clarity that a single authority can bring to the field and the res respect for uh, different states, different circumstances, and different rules. So uh, that, was the, that was the way we tried to get through that uh, rather narrow uh, 
guess the, the, the narrow eye of the needle right. uh, to, to 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 balance those two factors. So the the other liability provision is one that's kind of quite relevant to people who watch the fights over uh, uh, the Defense Production Act and who's going to get which ventilators. Uh, um, it's a suggestion that um, if somebody has systemically important critical infrastructure, uh, um, they will get special attention from the government and that that's going to be good and bad, uh, 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 good in the sense that uh, when they're told to do something, they'll get liability protection for doing it, which might be important if you're allocating something that uh, uh, is a matter of life and death. Uh, uh, But they are also going to get told a lot uh, by the uh, federal government about what they should be doing. Uh, Can you uh, explain how that would work and uh, what the uh, nature of the liability protections are going to be? Well, I think the, the basic principle, and I'll let Samantha speak to this as well, but I think the basic principle is that there's a difference between uh, somebody that's making hula hoops and somebody that's delivering electricity or making ventilators, uh, That and that different standards uh, should apply. Um, and this was a, there was a lot of discussion with this. As, as we mentioned, Tom Fanning was one of the key members of our commission, the CEO of, of the Southern Company, a major utility. And and the concept of uh, systematically uh, important, uh, systemically important uh, infrastructure, I think, is a, is an important concept that uh, those folks are going to get uh, uh, preferential uh, attention in many ways from the government. But in exchange for that, they're going to have to uh, have a greater level of uh, transparency and and uh, liability if they uh, if they don't perform because they're doing things that affect people's uh, lives. And, and that was that's, that's the theory. Samantha, you want to bring more wisdom to bear? And if you could, let me just uh, put a slightly finer point on that. Uh, um, there actually was a decision that certain workers were systemically important, certain companies and uh, industries were systemically important. uh, uh, And the result of that determination just uh, like three weeks ago was to say the the workers who support this industry must be allowed to break quarantine and uh, break lockdown. Uh, uh, So this is a this is not a theoretical thing. It could happen tomorrow. Right. Right, and and we have a you know we dedicate a decent part of the, the the report to as I said to to understanding what we can do to shore up resilience, and part of that is at that point was to look at even worst case scenarios if if the U.S. faced a major cyber attack, how could we bring the economy back online? Continuity of the economy is called, um, you know, which pieces of the economy have to come up first, but as we're seeing now with the Defense Production Act, you can force companies to accept and prioritize manufacturing contracts, um, but it's not automatically afforded blanket tort immunity, right? At least that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working through this live fire exercise and seeing, well, yeah, but we need we need companies to you know not have to think twice if they have to roll into emergency mode. Um, it is one of the things you said. Well, we get through this crisis, we're going to have a lesson learned. You know, did did the existing um, tort liability protection or lack thereof 
prevent um, of what we needed for the 3D printing of nasal swabs or ventilators or face masks. Um, you overlay that on a major cyber attack, and you can see you don't want anyone thinking twice if they are called to ask for the health, welfare, um, protection of our citizenry to say, yeah, but, you know, what happens if I'm in the rush to help by something goes wrong, yep. right? You don't want to have to have that conversation um, sign me what will need to be done uh, in the event of a, of a major cyber attack. So, uh, and that's what we're trying to get to. And again, it's what Angus said. I mean, you know, we're also just, what are real solutions to real problems? They'll, you know, the finer, finer detail, of course, is going to have to be worked out by the legislators themselves. But this commission report goes a long, long way in kind of breaking through kind of the nonsensical thinking that had grown up about who could do what and where and when and how. Um, we're, we're an extremist on cyber. We're an extremist now on COVID, but cyber is going to be, you know, with us way longer than, than this virus is. Well, I, and I remember when, when we were doing war games for cyber incidents, 10, 15 years ago, um, you didn't get very far in struggling with the, the government's authorities and uh, the liabilities before somebody said, well, screw this, let's just declare martial law. Uh, and uh, what you're proposing is a lot of things that are well short of martial law, that if we don't have them, uh, uh, martial law is our only alternative. That's to be avoided, if, if at all possible, in my view. And, and uh... Uh, remember, the whole concept of our government is checks and balances, and the whole concept of martial law is not much in the way of checks or balances. So that's why I think the work that we've done to, to try to uh, solve this problem without having to resort to martial law is, uh, yeah. is an important contribution. So let me ask a question, and I, I, uh, Samantha, I'll start with you. I really generally don't understand one of your recommendations, but I thought it was intriguing. Uh, uh, it was a suggestion that tweaking the pen register trap and trace rules would allow um, people who are under attack to gather more information than they currently can about their attackers, which I'm all for. I think we, we unnecessarily uh, uh, tie the hands of people who are under uh, attack. But I wasn't quite sure exactly uh, what this proposal would allow people to do. I think I think that proposal, you know, it, it has it has merit to it. Um, it was a bit of icing on the cake um, in terms of when we sat around and thought, okay, what are other ways that data could be collected, people could be protected. This this came in. This was a private sector recommendation, if I if I recall correctly, um, uh, where there were certain uh, private sector entities that you know that had laid out a a. Um, a plan that, that collection of data and the ability to do this would harden, you know, add that much more resilience. Um, we'll see if the, the tranches that go forward to the Hill and legislation, but as Angus said, there'll be a, um, a, an appendix with really firmed up the, the legislative language oh, that's great. Um, on these recommendations where the legislature has had has, has some of it. Look, some of it will have to um, be, you know, convincing the executive branch to do what, you know, they will be doing. Others are recommendations for the private sector to to take up themselves. But where possible, 
um, we really are looking at these recommendations to for Congress to enact the Congressional uh, Commission. Stuart, I, I feel strongly about this provision because I think that um, subjecting systems to penetration testing is uh, is critical. Uh, you're a CEO of a major company, and somebody says, "How's your cyber?" You check with your CIO, and he or she says, "Oh, we're in great shape." Um, I don't think you really know that until you've been subjected to uh, to penetration testing, until somebody has tried to hack you yes. and demonstrated to you that maybe you're not as secure as you thought. So uh, I, I, I'm a I'm a great believer in that. I was very disappointed that the cybersecurity legislation that we were talking about or, or uh, protection of the states, the states actually objected to a provision that they would be subject to friendly hacking, if you will, which I. I found shocking. Uh, I, I think I think if there's one truth in the situation we're in now is that everybody thinks they're more secure than they really are. Yeah, absolutely. The best way to cure that is for a skull and crossbones to show up on the CEO's desktop uh, that says, uh, have, you know, have a nice day. I'm now in charge of your network. One of our other recommendations was to uh, amend Sarbanes-Oxley. Yes. To, to mandate that public companies maintain internal records of, of cyber risk assessments, the kind that Angus was just talking about. And, um, you know, I speak to a lot of boards. I sit on a corporate board. Um, you know, in, in the conversations that I've been having, brought it up in a conversation with the chamber, I, I have not gotten any pushback from um, the C-suites or other board members uh, on corporate boards about this provision, right? So they may be um, ahead of the law on this. Responsibility they, they may be ahead of the law um, on this. So I, that, that is to say I'm the sorry, bo boards are scared enough about some of the cyber incidents that they've seen that the, the, the good ones are already asking a lot of these questions. And so once you've asked those questions, it's easy to give the certifications. Uh, um, and so I, I think you're probably right. A lot of boards are already doing what, what would be required here. I can tell you something else from sitting on risk and audit committees is it allows the board members to push for the right expenditures to go for cybersecurity when otherwise, you know, you might have to have that, that conversation that you especially now when you're looking at CapEx and other, you know, other parts of where can we cut costs. Um, if you're a board member and you can say, look, you know, we have to um, maintain these internal records on cyber risk assessments. We've got to put the money in. We've got to protect this. Uh, you have an easier day um, of it. It's similar. It's similar to our discussion of the of the uh, of the of the liability question. What we're really talking about is a certification of cyber solvency. Uh, just as companies have to certify. Public companies have to have to file reports annually about their financial condition. Uh, we think that this is uh, this is an important this is important information for the public generally, and certainly for the shareholders. It's it's relevant information in terms of your investment in a company to know whether and to what extent they have their uh, as I say their solvent in a cyber sense their. Uh, they're protected and they're taking this risk seriously. So I, again, it, it, at first blush, it may think, oh, no, this is a new set of regulations. I think it's exactly analogous to what regulation is already in place to protect investors uh, and the society. So let me, let me 
sort of try to bring this to a close, Senator King, by uh, talking about something that uh, uh, you and I have in common, which is the intelligence community. I was general counsel at the National Security Agency. You're on the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. And this uh, commission report has um, recommendations that really probably would have been unthinkable 10 years ago, uh, uh, that uh, the intelligence communities find ways to provide support to the private sector. Right? Uh, and um, there's this is probably less legal than cultural, but this is a big cultural lift for the intelligence community and maybe for the private sector too. Well, but it's an important one because, again, that one of the one of the difficult and, and important aspects of this issue is the the uh, the huge amount of the vulnerability that exists in the private sector. As I mentioned, the number I've heard is eighty to ninety percent of the risk uh, the the risk the target space is in the private sector, uh, and yet uh, you know we're we're used to thinking of the government as protecting us against attacks from abroad. So there has to be a, a real, uh, a deeper level of coordination and cooperation and, infor and in, uh, information sharing than has been the case in the past. And as you indicate, the, the, whole, the whole ethos of the uh, intelligence community is secrecy. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't want to reveal anything confidential, but just we've been working through this year with the with the uh, intelligence agencies. What do you do with information that a foreign force is is attacking a political campaign? When do you notify the candidate? Yeah. And you know, if you go through six committees and wait uh, eleven months, and it's two months after the election, that doesn't work very well. But it's not in the DNA of the intelligence community to make that information available promptly, and yet uh, we're pushing them to do so because otherwise it's, it's, it's not useful. And of course, you have to protect sources and methods, uh, and everybody understands that. But um, that's the, that, that sort of uh, underlies the, the nature of the problem that we have, uh, and we have to understand that there's an enormous uh, cross uh, uh, relationship between the private sector and the public sector in this in this particular field. That's one of the things that makes it so hard. That's one of the things that made our work so complex and, and difficult to try to navigate that uh, that uh, uh, combined uh, uh, situation of the two the two areas of vulnerability. It's not just government. It's not just the private sector. There's got to be uh, there's got to be a close information sharing and coordination of response. Well, and and in, it's my experience in the intelligence community that you can't have good intelligence unless you have good intelligence consumers. Uh, and, and Samantha was a particularly demanding consumer and that's what you need because what, ha what, what happens Why is that <laughs> because the intelligence community brings you what they think is, is, is worthwhile. And you're the expert. You say, this sounds good, but it doesn't tell me anything I didn't already know. You need to find out this one thing. And then they go out and try to find that one thing and they get close and you say, not close enough. Uh, and that's what makes for good intelligence, which means that oddly, our private sector actually has to step up as well. If, if, if there's going to be more intelligence that, that matters to the private sector, it's going to have to come because 
some of the biggest companies engage and say, you know, that's pretty good, but it doesn't really tell me what I need to know. I, and hopefully we'll start seeing that. Uh, well, look, congratulations to both of you on this report. It, uh, uh, it shows the signs of people who really thought hard about uh, these issues and didn't settle for the quickest uh, um, uh, uh, solutions off the shelf. Uh, these are, many of these are going to be really hard to achieve, but there's nothing that can't be done with enough will. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a very impressive body of work. Thank you. And I, I want to thank Samantha for the work that she brought to it. She was one of our most valuable members. And, and this, was, uh, this was not a, a, a sort of uh, automatic pilot piece of work. We met pretty much every Monday for about nine months and, and uh, for, for, for two straight hours. We had people flying in from all over the country. Of course, we couldn't be doing that today. We're fortunate that we got it done before the, the current problem current crisis but it was a it was a lot of work and a lot of really uh if, if, as i say it wasn't like something the staff told us what to do and we said yeah that sounds okay there was a great deal of discussion uh i'll end my comments by saying i only wish the congress were, worked as well as our commission i'll, <laughs> I'll leave it at that well, I, Samantha, let me let me let me let me frame this just a little. I uh, because in my view, successful commissions have two jobs. One is to come up with uh, credible, effective recommendations, uh, which you've done, and the other, which the nine eleven commission did, which the WMD commission did, is to get their recommendations implemented. I uh, uh, and. That's going to be a, a, a tough haul. Do you think that it can be done? Well, certainly uh, Congress has to um, uh, get on the stick and, and pass these laws, and, and then they will, they will be implemented because they have to be, right? I mean, whether they're implemented before or after we have the major attack, you know, that's to be seen. Um, but I would urge all your listeners to at least read the chairman's letter and the executive summary, because one of the other great things, and again, it's the leadership of, of Angus that really pushed this ahead, is kind of the, 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 the plain speak, you know, that, that this report is written in. You can see the pathway to get these things done and the necessity to do them. It is not, you know, hand-waving 50,000-foot level, no one can understand Washington speak. Um, and so I think that increases the chance that we are going to get these things implemented and operationalized before we have the major cyber attack that we all expect at some point to have. All right. Well, thank you, Senator King. Thank you, Dr. Ravitch. Thanks also to Brian Egan and Maury Shank and Nick Weaver for the News Roundup. This has been episode 311 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, send any comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.